You are listening to a message that was given at Living Word Chapel, Oracle, Arizona. It is our hope and prayer that God will use this message to speak to you and enrich your life. For more information, visit lwcoracle.org. Beatitude number six. Our text is found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. And anybody who has ever been to vacation Bible school or attended a Sunday school class, this has probably been one of your memory verses. It's 11 words. So let's say it together. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 11 simple words. And I got 10 pages of notes. What was Jesus trying to say? Now, this beatitude, it falls sequentially, and it's like a pivot in the total number of beatitudes, where those in the beginning lead up to this pivotal point. And because of this, the rest are a result. So we see this sequence where those that see their sinful state. They recognize that they're poor in spirit. And so they mourn over their sin. And they're humbled by the fact that in themselves, they can't do anything about it. And so they hunger and they thirst for the righteousness of God. Consequently, they're filled. And they receive this bountiful mercy that God gives Which leads us to this point of being saved, where their sins have been washed away and they've been made pure. Now, as a result of this, we who have received mercy are able to give mercy. We who have been forgiven are able to forgive. We become peacemakers. It goes on and says that we'll be mocked, scorned, and persecuted as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. You see, these words were so out of the ordinary. When Jesus spoke them to his disciples on this mount, they were revolutionary. They went across the grain. He said, blessed, happy, fulfilled are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, the Hebrews, they understood that no one can see God and live. But Jesus is saying that we will see God. The other Beatitudes give promises such as being part of the kingdom of God, inheriting the earth, being filled, receiving mercy. But this one gives the promise that we will see God. So as we seek to understand what Jesus was saying, let's consider a few things this morning. What does he mean by heart? Is he talking about that muscle within us that pumps blood into our body? I think it has to be something more than that. And what about purity? He speaks that those that are pure in heart have this state of blessing and privilege. But what does it mean to be pure? And what does it mean to see God? 
Is he talking literally or metaphorically? What's he saying? And how can we take these 11 words and apply it to our, to our, our life, our everyday experience? How can we apply that? And so that's what I want us to look at today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak through this vessel. Father, that your word would fall on good soil. Let our mind be alert and let our hearts be open to receive your word, that it would bear forth fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's examine the heart. What was Jesus referring to? We don't think that it's that muscle. You know, you hear people say that, you know, that makes my heart glad. Some might look at a puppy and say, doesn't that just warm your heart? We're told by the world to do everything that our heart tells us to do, to, to find our heart's desire and, and not hold back. Even Disney gets involved and says that if we wish on a star, that we can have anything our heart desires. We read scriptures that tell us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Does that mean that I take my heart out and I put it in Bank of the West? No. So what is Jesus trying to tell us? Well, the atheist... George Bernard Shaw, in his drama, Man and Superman, he wrote, there are two tragedies in life. One is not to get your heart's desire. And the second one is to get it. So we're talking about heart. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word for heart is cardia. And we get cardiac from that word. You see, every culture has this internal organ that they, they decide is the center part, that epicenter that, of the mind, the will, the emotions. In our Western culture, that happens to be the heart. And it's used interchangeably with our mind. And that's the way that the Scripture has implored this word. It's used 105 times in 98 verses of the New Testament in this way. You know, we say that I love you with all of my heart. Or we say, let's just get to the heart of the matter. So what we're saying is, let's get to the center of what we're talking about. Let's get to the epicenter. And so when we relate to the heart of a man, we're talking about that inner part of us that makes up who we are. Now, we're created with a body, with a soul, a mind, our emotions, and we're created with a spirit. All three of that makes up who we are. If I was to lose an arm, would I still be me? Yes. If I was to lose my job, would I still be me? Yes. Now, what if I had to go in and get this heart replaced with a plastic heart with valves? Would I still be me? Yes. Because God isn't talking about our 
muscle that pumps our blood. He's talking about the essence of our inwardness, that, that part of us that makes up our, our emotions, our essence, our will, who we are. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And so when our friends tell us, well, just follow your heart, is that bad advice? Well, it depends on the condition of your heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 reads, the heart of the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Well, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19, where he says, From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, slander. Turn to your neighbor and say, yuck, is that in me? You see, everything that we speak comes from the root of our heart because out of the abundance of our heart, The mouth speaks. And every action that we do comes from that root of our heart. Because our heart, it tells us and it it dictates to us the course of our life. And so there has to be a change within us. And only The blood of Jesus can bring that change. It's only as we get that change that we will be happy. So we're confronted with this problem. We see that our heart is wicked. We invent ways of being evil. That is over here. And in contrast to that, we see that The pure in heart see God. In between these two, there's this fence, this barrier that we can't pass. And so we're like a kid looking over the neighbor's yard. Wanting what's over there. We want to see God. But we recognize we are wicked. We are evil. There's nothing that we can do about it. And so we mourn. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, we're told to pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which we're not able to see God. And Jesus tells us in the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, that we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. But our hearts are wicked. They're marred with sin. How can we love God when we have a wicked heart? And how can we extend that love if we don't have a vertical relationship? How can we extend that love to our neighbor? Why, we don't even love ourselves at times. So, We're faced with this perplexing situation. 
Pastor John Piper says, the heart is utterly crucial to Jesus. What we are in the deep, private recesses of our lives is what he cares about the most. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world simply because we have some bad habits that need to be broken. He came into the world because we have such a dirty heart that needs to be purified, and only Jesus can change and transform our heart. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, here's the definition of purity. Purity means conforming absolutely to a standard of quality, to be faultless. When a thing is pure, it's unmixed, unalloyed, unadulterated, uncontaminated, undefiled by anything foreign to itself. And depending on the context, it goes on and it can be clear, entire, true, perfect, sterling, chaste, virginal, immaculate, spotless, untainted, good, moral, impeccable, honorable, principled, ethical, guiltless, flawless, sincere, without hypocrisy. So who are you? It's the heart of the man, that inner portion of us, who we really are. And it's that inner part of us that needs to be pure. But how do we attain that purity? How are we transformed? You know, it's kind of cool that the youth group last night, they had this ceremony where they declared that they were going to remain pure. You see, they're the bride of Christ. And so they had a wedding ceremony in which they dedicated themselves to be single-minded in their focus to God. To not stray to those worldly patterns and those things that pull and tug on us. But out of devotion to God, to remain pure, not only to God and to one another, but to remain pure on the inside. And it's from that purity that we have an internal purity that it flows out to that external. Now, isn't that great? Give the youth a hand. They're doing a wonderful job. And so the Pharisees, on the other hand, they tried to get this purity from the outside. Now, I don't know if you guys have this problem, but my job around the house is to do the dishes. I know, it's not a very manly job, but somebody has to do it. Now, I I don't put on those big gloves and get the sink full of boiling hot water and scrub like, you know, they used to. Nah, guys will figure out an easy way. We have a dishwasher, praise the Lord. And so I load the dishwasher. Now, I get it all loaded up one morning, and out of the kindness and the goodness of my heart, with the fruit of the Spirit being radiated to the outside, I recognize the kids are taking a shower, and so I don't turn the dishwasher on, and I go off to work. When I get home, because of the great husband that I am, and because I want to perform my duties, I open the dishwasher, and I put everything away, and I even move 
cups and I put them way back behind and I stack everything in so nice. Proud that I have done such a great job. And so when it comes time for dinner, I grab a cup and I put ice in it and I turn on the water and I notice that I got floaters. Chocolate milk floaters. Well, that happens sometimes. You know, I'm a guy. So I grab another cup and the same thing. And then I remember... I forgot to turn the dishwasher on. The outside of the cup looked clean. I couldn't even tell. I put everything away thinking I'd done such a great job, but the inside of the cup was full of chocolate milk. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do. They tried to clean up the outside of the cup and the plate, not looking into the inside of the cup. So Jesus talks to them in Matthew chapter 23, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly. You know, we may clean it up and put fresh flowers. It's still a tomb. He says, you look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Say yuck again. I mean, what can be less pure than the inside of a tomb full of dead men's bones? Jesus is not only telling them, you're dead, and inside of you, it's rotten. You see, man looks at the outside, but it's God that looks at the heart. Think of a glass of milk. Tall, cool, refreshing, white, tasty glass of milk. White, testifying of the purity of the milk. Nothing better on a hot day than a glass of milk. Now suppose something falls into the cup and contaminates it, like a fly. Now we learn in science about water surface tension. Well, the fly doesn't just sink to the bottom. It sits on the surface and it flaps one wing and it'll flap the other wing. And nobody I know wants to drink a glass of milk that has a fly in it. Suppose somebody takes the fly out. Now the cup of milk again looks pure. But would you drink it? <laughs> Inside there, you can't see it, but there's contaminants that make this glass of milk impure. I wouldn't want to drink it. And that's what happened. That's the state of the Pharisees in the time of Jesus, and it's the problem that we face today. You see, our lives can be contaminated with sin. Now, we may be good at hiding it, Maybe not everybody can see because man sees the outside. But inside, we have the sin that breaks our relationship with God. And so, we need to change. We need to clean this stain on the inside. And only the blood of Jesus can do that. It doesn't matter how polished you get the outside the inside, if it's contaminated and marred by sin, it's contaminated. So it doesn't matter if 
you're in wickedness and you're as far away from this fence that separates wickedness from the pure in heart. You can be over here like Pigpen in Schultz's Peanuts, you know, with a dust cloud going around you. Or you can be over here right next to the edge like the Pharisees. You're still wicked because your life is marred by sin. So, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were meticulous at trying to follow the law. And they even invented laws. You know, they had laws on what you can eat, what you can wear, how far you can walk on the Sabbath. They were so pure in their own eyes that it took Jesus to call them a hypocrite, whitewashed tombs. And even then, they didn't get it. They thought that they were pure because of what they did, not pure because of who they are. Romans 5.20 tells us that the law, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. So if the law was given to reveal the sinfulness of man, can keeping the law make you perfect? No. All that does is makes you aware of your sin. You see sin. You don't see God. You know, imagine a kid that sees a jar of cookies. And so one day he eats a cookie. The next day he gets another. And the next day another. Finally his mother sees him sneaking a cookie and she tells him, you cannot get any more cookies. Well, did this new rule change his desire to eat a cookie? No. All it did was make him aware that eating a cookie was unacceptable. So, as the Sermon on the Mount continues, Jesus makes a surprising statement. Not that the rest of his statements weren't surprising, but he makes this statement in 5, verse 48. He says, but you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we just cover the fact that obeying the law doesn't make you perfect. Christ's teaching of the Beatitudes is not a description of unattainable behavior. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of God's grace. It's that life in the kingdom of God for those who are willing to live in intimacy with Christ. And this virtue, this purity, doesn't come from the outside in, but it comes from the inside out. And it needs a transformation, a renewing of our heart. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the, the pure and outward appearance, for they shall see God. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, at first glance, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, it, it looks like there's just another rule, another law. But really, it's a picture and a, a wonderful revelation of God's grace. So point number two, who can see God? Well, 
Apart from Christ, nobody. Remember, we're separated. Apart from Christ, we are wicked, and our heart is full of deceit and wickedness, and it's all manners of evil. But there's this purity that comes from God that we can't get over this fence in ourselves. In fact, Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standards. But Jesus came into this world for our sins. To renew that position that Adam once had before the fall. You see, in original creation, God made man. He placed him in this garden, and everything that he needed was provided for him. God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and he became a living being, both physically and spiritually. He had relationship with God. He walked with God. Well, sin entered the world, and as a result of sin came death and separation from God. Man found himself now outside of the garden, rejected. And he had all these feelings of negative emotions, guilt, shame, the rejection came. Man lost that relationship because his spirit had died. He still had physical life. But look around, one out of one, we die. Death is going to be the last thing thrown into the lake of fire. So we find ourselves in this fallen state, separated from God. But Jesus came and he took our sin. In Psalm 22, it says, Jesus equates it as my sin. He personalizes it. My sin. And he imputes on us his righteousness. So who can see God? Well, Nicodemus had the same question, and he didn't even get the question out until Jesus said, you must be born again. So in order to get out of this state of wickedness and sin, we have to be born again because our spirit is dead. We need a new birth. And that happens in our identification of who we are in Christ. Remember the illustration that this is us, and this is Christ. And God says that in his word that we are hidden with God in Christ. So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. You see, our sinful nature that we had inherited from Adam in original creation, it died on the cross and was buried. And that new birth where we are born again, where the Spirit of God now has created in us a new spirit, a new heart, a new nature. We have a new identity. We are now in Christ. We are no longer identified in any way as being in Adam. That sinful nature is gone. You know, the devil would try to say that you have this dual nature within you. 
But that's a lie. We have one nature. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. That old sinful nature has been buried. It's gone. It's forever separated from us. And so, still talking to Nicodemus, Jesus says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And in Ezekiel, he foretold his plan of restoration. He says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now it's not keeping God's judgments and his laws that does this transformation. That's what God has done. He transformed us. He has given us a new nature, a new name, a new heart, a new purpose. So, let's skip ahead a little bit. Point number three. Who can see God? Well, because we are now identified as being in Christ, we are God's children We're sons and daughters. We're no longer enemies of God or enemies of God and slaves to unrighteousness, slaves to sin, but now we're children of God. We have a new nature. That relationship with God has been renewed. At eight years old, I stood at the front of the Baptist church in Oracle. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ because I realized I had a sinful nature. I didn't understand it all, but I understood it as an eight-year-old could. At that very moment, God took my sin and gave me his righteousness. I'm not becoming righteous. I am righteous. And even though I'm just barely on the fence, I'm pure in heart. I'm no longer identified as having a wicked heart. I have a new heart. I am pure. Now the problem or the situation that we face is sometimes we want to look back over the wall and we want to follow those old patterns. You see, we need to renew our mind and get away from that old worldly thinking. We need to be focused that we are being conformed into the image of Christ. And the farther we go in that, the harder it's going to be to walk according to the pattern of the world because we're going to be farther and farther and farther away. Now, as we walk, there's going to be things that are going to come that are trying to distract us. So we need to have that singleness of thought and keep our minds, our hearts on Christ. Now, that doesn't, it's not a do list, a to-do list of do's and don'ts. What that is, is out of our innermost being, that heart, that essence of who we are that has been made pure, now we have the fruit of the Holy Spirit that expresses itself on the outside. So we can walk 
and not be entangled in sin. We have that choice. We're no longer slaves. That vertical relationship has been restored. Now we can love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And we can love our neighbor as ourselves because we have that horizontal plane. We can extend mercy. We can extend forgiveness. We can be the peacemakers, not because of anything we do, but because of everything Christ has done. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is true. That we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are children of God. You have purified our heart and cleansed us from the inside so that the fruit of the Holy Spirit can be manifest on the outside. That we can live in right relationship with you, with singleness of mind. That we have that choice not to walk according to the old patterns of worldly behavior, but we can walk according to your Holy Spirit that lives within us and works in us and works through us, that we can extend your love to those around us, to our neighbors. We thank you that we can love ourselves in a right way, not out of selfishness and self-centeredness, but we can love because you have created us in your image. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Living Word Chapel. We hope that you've been blessed by it. Make sure you check out lwcoracle.org for more information.